This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, July 14th. I'm Philip Nice here with four staff writers from the Philadelphia Trumpet. In our Edmond, Oklahoma studio with me are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. And we again have Richard Palmer in studio. Good morning. And we have Mihailo Zekic in Jerusalem. Good to be here. This week we're going to start the week in review with Anglo-America. Andrew Miller. Yeah, this week in the Anglo-American region, flash floods raged in the U.S. Northeast. Representative Jim Jordan slammed the FBI for acting like communist China in censoring Americans. And former U.S. President Bill Clinton and Alex Soros visited Pope Francis at the Vatican. Now, the main story you want to bring us has to do with a specific individual that we try to keep an eye on and who tries to avoid the public eye. Yeah, this is a a story you're not going to hear about from many news outlets, even though it is extremely significant and showing actually who really runs the United States. But uh, a report published by MSN this week reveals that Barack Obama may be working to stab Joe Biden in the back and support a new presidential candidate this coming election. Uh, Obama, he's a one of the first presidents in the century to actually live in Washington, D.C. So uh, he lives in a mansion there that um, the investigative journalist Lee Smith refers to as the Shadow White House. And uh, as with that mysterious meeting between Bill Clinton and Pope Francis, uh, we don't uh, get a lot of details <laughs> uh, about the uh, the type of conversations going on at either the Vatican or the Shadow White House. We just know from the visitor logs that there's a lot of meetings going on both places. And um, this report this week um, cites um, an observation uh, Jonathan Martin made at Politico uh, showing that Obama, he's actually held a number of lengthy meetings with younger House Democrats, which are described as informal and uh, and as taking place over cheese and crackers in Obama's Washington office. So he's got the shadow White House and you've got all these young Democrats from Congress coming in to meet with him, uh, chowing down on the cheese and crackers uh, and talking about something. And um, one Beltway insider who for um, wishes to remain anonymous <laughs> Uh, had this to say about the meetings. He said, Obama recognizes the gravity of the situation with Joe's disappointing poll numbers. He had hoped the president would have rallied and come into his own at this point, but that clearly hasn't happened. With 2024 growing closer and closer, he had to act since he apparently fears Joe is getting too old and too frail to win. So it's an open secret in Washington that Joe Biden, he's going... He's going senile. Um, he's really not a good choice for the Democrats going into 2024. And uh, even though Barack Obama is publicly still publicly supporting Joe Biden, I've seen several commercials uh, where he's trying to drum up people to donate to his campaign. Um, they do know from those visitor logs that he's he's screening all the all the young talent in the Democratic Party right now. Uh, looking for <laughs> who to set up 
uh, and kind of playing a role as a, a kingmaker, which uh, interesting from a prophetic point because um, the, well, the book we'll put in the show note is America Under Attack from our editor in chief Gerald Flurry, which likens Obama to um, the ancient king Antiochus Epiphanes who in Daniel 11, verse 24, it says, In his estate shall stand up a vile person who they've not given the kingdom. He shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And so it definitely shows that uh, anciently Antiochus, uh, he, he wasn't elected because he wasn't in a democracy and he wasn't even in line for the throne. It was his brother's son that was in line to the throne. But he worked with all the uh, <laughs> with all the politicians behind the scenes and got himself installed. And Barack Obama definitely works the same way. And I think you can see that even more so in his now— uh, third term, as some called it. His first two terms, he was actually more, he just got elected and then ran the White House. But this one, it's uh, like I said, he's not, he's not technically the president. He's not the one reading the teleprompter and making gaffes like Joe Biden. Um, but he is there sitting in the shadow White House uh, and talking with um, all the who's who's in Washington uh, and really like setting up, <laughs> setting up who's going to be the the next uh, power center in the in the nation, and really just really shows that when you uh, you keep an eye on that shadow White House, that the uh, the person running America is not the, the the person going senile. From the shadow White House, beginning right at the start of Joe Biden's regime in 2021, if you remember, Barack Obama installed a lot of what they called Obama people in place of the Biden people as as uh biden was coming in to the white house and word was that obama ran the white house through one of those obama people domestic policy advisor susan rice and she quit in may so that goes with what you're saying a biden appears uh to have been a tool obama could use now the question is will he use someone else uh as you mentioned the literature you can have a look at is barack obama fundamentally transforming america an article on thetrumpet.com, Barack Obama Fundamentally Transforming America, and America Under Attack by Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Now let's go to Richard Palmer for a look at the Europe region. One of the big anticipated events from the German government has been the publication of their new China strategy paper. Uh, and that, after months of wrangling and, and discussion, finally dropped uh, yesterday and because it's been so hotly anticipated, there is a lot kind of writing on this. It was going to show what is Germany's approach going to be to China. And there were lots of different things talked about. There was talk, for example, of cracking down on companies that do a lot of business with China, where they'd have to publish detailed reports of all of their links. They would have to undergo stress tests the way that banks do, so that if there's some kind of stress in Europe's China's in the Europe-China relationship, can this business survive? Uh, and have all of that kind of impact investors. Report came out, none of that was in there. Instead, this was kind of very much the China Dove version of the report. Uh, it's there because the Green Party in Germany kind of wants to be tough with China. Uh, so they kind of get a little bit of a win by having some kind of China paper. But the rest of the German government wants to continue doing business with China. And crucially, German industry wants to keep doing business with China. The Federation of German Industry is very happy with this China paper. So we can expect uh, German business to lead, to continue to lead Germany into this closer relationship with China. 
Uh, this is something that that Trump editor in chief Gerald Flurry has has put a lot of attention on because there's this prophesied trend of a of a mart of nations of this trading alliance of nations that includes Germany and China. So we can watch for that beefing up. We also saw the EU's war on farmers heating up. There's been a lot of attention of this going on in the Netherlands, where behind the Dutch attempt to shut down a lot of farms is EU environmental regulation, uh, as kind of dramatically expanded by European courts. Now there's new legislation on its way through the European Parliament that would crack down on farming across the EU more broadly. It would force European countries to kind of make more, turn more of their farms into nature reserves, into peat bogs, into wetlands, uh, and just dramatically reduce the amount of acreage that is under cultivation. Uh, it passed this week, but in such a way where now there's going to be a lot of wrangling over the details. And it may well be that it gets killed in the details, uh, and that it's kind of watered down so that it's a bill in name only, kind of like the China paper. Uh, but this is going to be uh, a big kind of controversial front now for the EU going forwards. And then also this week, the alternative for Deutschland in opinion polls very firmly overtook the Social Democratic Party as Germany's number two party. I, we, we talked about this when it first happened, when they first kind of inched ahead of the SDP. But now it's... You know they're they're quite far ahead, and so we're seeing you know, the, this new upstart party uh, just firmly entrenched in German politics, and potentially now starting to break through into German government and German coalitions. And that's a, both a, a symptom of the massive dissatisfaction within Germany, uh, the status quo, and a sign of much bigger political changes to come. And that and the arrival of a strong German leader is something we've been watching for closely. And uh, something of all goes to plan, we'll talk more about in the next Trumpet print edition. Our main story revolves around a big NATO summit that was going on this week. And you had um, President Joe Biden fly over to attend and, and a lot of these different heads of state. But it relates very directly to what we're going to talk about for our panel discussion. So maybe I'll, I will save kind of our main story uh, to talk about when we discuss uh, the kind of the broader subject of European-Russian relations uh, and the dramatic changes going on in Europe uh, with our panel. So we'll get to that shortly. And in the meantime, let's keep an eye on the German industrialists and on that relationship with China and that mart of nations to replace the current United States-led markets. You're listening to Trumpet Hour on KPCG. We'll be right back. So far, we have covered two of our four regions, Anglo-America and Europe. Now let's get an update from Mihailo Zekic in Jerusalem. Yes, so as far as the Middle East is concerned, there's been a few, um, shall we say, old new news. Um, on Sunday, the Israeli Security Cabinet voted to send financial and other aid to the Palestinian Authority to, in an effort to stop it from collapsing. The PA has been having quite a bit of a shaky time financially for a, a long time. They're not necessarily on the best of terms with the Israeli government, but Israel likes the uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the PA being around more than Hamas taking over the West Bank. So they offered to send uh, send them more money and help them with tourism infrastructure, for example. And perhaps predictably, the PA rejected 
this offer, it would have uh, entailed them uh, ceasing the funding of uh, families of convicted terrorists in Israel and stop lobbying international community to boycott Israel. So in one sense, it's a, nothing new, but uh, it all, it's a good reminder on how dire the situation in the West Bank is getting and how the Israelis are willing to support a uh, on and off enemy, even you could say, just to stop uh, Iran and radical Islam from sleeping in there, seeping in there. Um, not so much news this week, but it is important. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet, so uh, now is as good a time as any. Um, Robert Malley, the U.S. envoy to uh, Iran, had his security clearance uh, revoked uh, for like, government secrets by the FBI supposedly in April, but media only started reporting on this since June 29th. And since then, including up to this week, there's been a lot of hoo-ha in the media among the U.S. House trying to ask why Mali had his security clearance revoked. Um, Mali, for his part, hasn't appeared to explain anything. He's off the grid. So this is an ongoing saga that we'll keep an eye on. Mali, of course, is involved heavily in the Iran nuclear negotiations. So that probably has something to do with what happened. And um, on Tuesday, the Knesset in Israel passed uh, the first reading of its um, reasonableness uh, bill, shall we say, regarding judicial uh, um, control over the Israeli government and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reform program. This is meant to strip the Israeli Supreme Court on forcing the Israeli government from not doing certain things because of the reasonableness standard. Like, for example, say if they wanted to appoint a cabinet minister, that ha happened last year and the Israeli court uh, vetoed it, which is technically not what courts are supposed to do. This is supposed to work around that. Um, again, it's only the first reading. We'll see how this progresses and there's probably going to be a lot more chaos in the Knesset and on the streets in Israel as more of Netanyahu's judicial program goes forward. Of course, that judicial program uh, is what sparked the the major uh, protests earlier. Uh, have Have there been any protests in the streets so far on on this reintroduction of that uh, measure? Um, not nearly as big as uh, what was happening, say, in March. Um, since he had, even before the introduction to this measure, since I've been here, there's been basically weekly protests outside of his residence. Uh, sometimes they keep me up at night. Uh, I mean, the judicial reform protest is just a tip on the iceberg. Netanyahu's been in power for on and off for a while, and the Israeli left don't like it that he's still around. So it's more just them venting that he's still around to cause them problems rather than this particular issue. Um, as more and more of his agenda gets uh, crystallized, though, and enshrined into Israeli law, I wouldn't be surprised if things start heating up again as they were uh, back earlier this year. So is the biggest development from the Middle East region also old new news? Um, in a sense, it's uh, news that's been put on hold. Uh, this uh, piece that I want to talk about today involves Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. From Wednesday to Friday, which is today when we're recording this program, he made a visit to different countries in Africa, including Kenya, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. Now, in one sense, this might not seem like news. The world leaders visit other world leaders all the time. But this is actually the first visit from an Iranian president to Africa, anywhere in Africa, since 2010. 
that was when the infamous firebrand Mahmoud Ahmadinejad uh, was still in power. Between Ahmadinejad and Racy, you had Hassan Rouhani come in, full eight years as president, never once made a visit to Africa. Uh, Racy's been in power for uh, some time now, and uh, it's only now when he's starting to come in, 10, 13 years later, after the last presidential trip. So in a sense, it is big good, uh, or big news. Now, the question is, again, why is it big news? Why these particular countries? Well, Racy himself said that this trip is, uh, quote, a new beginning in relations with the continent, end quote, of Africa. Um, Iran obviously has quite a bit of interest in Africa. Uh, if you go back even before the Iranian Revolution, countries like Kenya and South Africa were among Iran's biggest trading partners. Uh, there's obviously a lot of links there with different countries and the, uh, shall we say, outside of the superpower blocks. But there's a lot more at stake here than just renewing trade obligations. Here's a uh, clip from analyst Eric Loeb. He was speaking this week to Al Jazeera's Inside Story, and this is his take on what uh, the Iranian trip is about. On the flip side, there's also um, the geopolitical component of this, where uh, these countries can be uh, non-permanent members on the UN Security Council, and, and of course they sit in the UN General Assembly on the IAEA Board of Governors, and they can potentially influence votes for Iran. Um, not to mention the fact that both uh, Zimbabwe and Uganda have uranium deposits, and so there's um, some value there in terms of uh, nuclear enrichment. Uh, in terms of the cultural ideological realm, I would say that Iran is going to be pushing on two levers. Um, given that, again, this is a Christian and Sunni majority continent, it will be really pushing on the, the anti-colonialism card, which it often does when it visits these countries to try to galvanize elites and citizens during these visits. And then secondly, it will also seek to make inroads in, in the, the small Shia communities uh, of these countries, particularly in Kenya uh, and Uganda. As you heard from Mr. Loeb over there, um, a lot of these countries have very uh, important strategic regions for Iran to get the, uh, to be more interested in. Um, other analysts are looking at what's going on with Africa and uh, seeing that this is also a way for Iran to circumvent, say, United States sanctions going to countries that maybe aren't as in firmly with the U.S. camp uh, economically or whatnot, be more willing to do business with Iran. And for Kenya, that's a another interesting group because uh, just north of Kenya you have Somalia. Somalia is right now fighting a, a, a civil war with the Islamist group Al-Shabaab. Kenya is helping Somalia out. Al-Shabaab has attacks in Kenya. But Iran is also a sponsor of Al-Shabaab. It's not nearly the biggest sponsor. Um, the terror group has more links with al or stronger links with Al Qaeda more than anything, but it still has it still sent them weapons and other supplies. So some even wonder if perhaps the uh, the Islamist takeover um, in the Horn of Africa region has something to do with this Kenya visit. We don't know for sure. Nothing's been announced. But the reason this is so important is because Bible prophecy. We've talked a lot about Iran on the show. We talk about their pursuit of nuclear weapons. We talk about their sponsoring terror attacks in places like Europe. Africa might seem a little bit far from home from some of our listeners. It's There's been problems there ever since decolonization happened. There's plenty of 
civil wars, revolutions, uh, warlords, terror groups that operate there. Why is Iran specifically important when it comes to Africa? Well, the prophecy we go to all the time talking about Iran, Daniel 11, verses 40 to 43, discuss Iran being a king of the south in this end time, a leader of a of a block of nations, an anti-Western block, uh, primarily united by radical Islam. And verse 43 talks about some of the partners that'll be with Iran in this group. It talks about Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, is also pointed to countries like Eritrea and Djibouti, which are historically uh, culturally connected to Ethiopia. All these countries are in Africa. Right now, Iran has a huge proxy empire in places like Syria and Lebanon. We expect those countries to leave the Iranian camp. But we also expect Iran to get more proxy uh proxies into its empire and most of them are in africa up until this point africa has not been the main battleground for iran but we're starting to see this change we're starting to see racy drift from the process of his predecessor and look to africa more as uh as has been described a country or a continent of opportunities and this trip to africa with uh by racy in some pretty significant areas could be the turning point we see of Iran being more interested in Africa, wanting to extend its tentacles in, wanting to have more of an empire in Africa. Time will tell, but it's certainly an interesting development. Iran's activities in Africa, a trend to keep an eye on. You mentioned to me the article at thetrumpet.com, Libya and Ethiopia in Prophecy. Libya and Ethiopia in Prophecy, specifically about this uh, particular trend. So check out the article, Libya and Ethiopian Prophecy at thetrumpet.com. Now let's go to the Asia region. Jeremiah Jacques, can you give us the three or four main stories we might want to look into? Sure, yeah. I'll start out with a big story out of China, where the armies of hackers seem to never rest. This week, Chinese hackers were found to have breached the email of the U.S. Commerce Department and also the State Department. Uh, the hackers were able to specifically breach the account of the Commerce Secretary. That marks the first known time that a cabinet-level U.S. official has had an account compromised in this kind of uh, you know targeted campaign. And who knows what the Chinese took or learned in these kinds of hacks. The details haven't been made public, but the danger of high-ranking U.S. officials being blackmailed in cases like these is uh, very worrying. Then another China story here, the nation's exports are plummeting even faster than expected. The government reported a 12.4% drop for June 2023 as compared to last June, and then imports are down about 7% for the same period. And that's you know, if you take China at its word. So it's probably even worse than that. So just some, some very serious economic trouble there. But while trade with other nations and overall trade is falling, China's trade with Russia continues to rise. Trade between the two of them hit almost $21 billion worth for June. That's the highest month since Russia's war on Ukraine began. So, you know, more concrete evidence there of the deep partnership between China and Russia. Another story here about Russia's war, um, it was a, a really rough week for Russia's top military officials. Ukraine used a British-made Storm Shadow missile on Tuesday to take out Lieutenant General Oleg Tsarkov. That targeted attack shows Ukraine's ongoing ability to take out senior military officials, even when they're far from the battlefield and when those men think that they're safe. There have now been at least 20 Russian generals killed since this war began about 500 days ago. 
And then uh, another Russian general this week was fired because he told the Kremlin that the war is not going well for Russia. This is Major General Ivan Popov, whose call sign is Spartacus. And uh, he's been on the front lines in Ukraine for months, and he gave a report that basically said Russia is suffering terrible casualty rates far beyond what the government reports or even seems to know. And so he was fired for that report. And that comes just days after General Surovakin, a.k.a. General Armageddon, uh, was apparently arrested for his role in the Wagner mutiny. So a pretty rough time there for Russian top officers. But this doesn't mean that everything's going great for Ukraine. Ukraine's counteroffensive is making gains, but they're only incremental gains and often at very heavy costs in terms of Ukrainian casualties. And meanwhile, a new AP investigation shows that thousands of Ukrainian civilians are being detained in prisons and basements and other, you know, terrible locations across Russia and parts of occupied Ukraine. These civilians have been arrested for all kinds of transgressions, some of them very minor, such as speaking to speaking Ukrainian in Russian-controlled territory, some of them very serious, such as terrorism charges. But all of these people, thousands of them, are being illegally detained, and many are being used for slave labor, digging trenches, digging graves. Hundreds of them have been tortured. At least 78 uh, have been executed. So just a really heart-rending crime that's underway there. I think of world wars and how uh, the, what those are basically combinations of what is happening in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the, there were more countries involved in those world wars, but uh, it was in, in any one country, was there anything worse happening than than what's happening in, in Ukraine and, and Russia? Uh, I believe that's going to be the topic of your main story as well, the, uh, the, the Russian war. Yes. Yeah, it is uh, along those lines for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I just mentioned a bit there about Russian casualties and a bit about Ukrainian casualties. But there is apparently another casualty in this war that became clear this week. And that casualty is the bond between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So, for the last several years, Erdogan has closely cooperated with Putin's government. It's always been a bit of a balancing act, you know, with Erdogan kind of playing Russia and the West off of each other. But for the most part, in recent years, Erdogan has leaned toward Putin. Part of that has been Erdogan's Turkey buying huge amounts of Russian energy at the same time that the U.S. and, and Europe have been trying to boycott it. Part of this has also been Erdogan giving endless diplomatic and political support to Putin throughout the war. And then one other part of that cooperation has been that Turkey has, for over a year now, blocked Sweden's attempts to join NATO. Uh, Turkey had its own reasons for that related to some Kurdish prisoners that Sweden wouldn't extradite to Turkey. But nevertheless, Putin sees NATO as adversary number one. So that Turkish block on Sweden joining NATO and thereby making NATO stronger, that was a big win for Russia. But this week, it, beca it became clear that something has changed with Erdogan. Erdogan met with the Swedish prime minister, and he agreed to lift his ban on Sweden's entry into NATO. So that was a big win for NATO, but also a big black eye for Putin. Now, of course, it's not official yet, but it shows that Erdogan is suddenly willing to at least discuss this move that is so detrimental to Russia. 
And then at the same time, Erdogan said he supports Ukraine joining NATO. Erdogan also made the decision to return some of Ukraine's fiercest soldiers back to them after they'd you know, been in captivity in Turkey for quite a while. This was something that Russia never agreed to, and the Russians are just irate with Turkey for allowing the Ukrainians to go free. There was also a big grain deal that Russia wanted to end. Putin didn't want Ukraine to be allowed to ship its grain out of the Black Sea anymore. Um, so Russia had refused to renew a deal to do that. But Turkey is the one that's really in charge of what goes into and out of the Black Sea through the, the Turkish Straits. And Erdogan said, you know what, Russia, we don't care if you want to end that deal, we're going to keep it going. So all of these recent moves, and especially I think the lifting of the block on Sweden joining NATO, all of this shows that Turkey is breaking from Russia and aligning more and more with Europe. So this is more than just Turkey playing off Russia. I mean, Turkey has uh, upset Russia before in order to get, you know, uh, get, you know, gains as how politics or international politics works a lot of the time. But this is apparently something bigger than that, as you said, the beginning of a break. So why did Turkey apparently decide to switch sides in this way to help Sweden get into Russia's biggest enemy, NATO? Yeah, well, you know, Turkey has long had concerns about Sweden blocking Turkey from buying a range of weapons. That's part of why they were blocking Sweden's bid. And even more pressing for Erdogan was that he long said Sweden wasn't doing enough to combat the PKK, a Kurdish group that Turkey views as terrorists. So that's why Erdogan blocked Sweden's membership for so long. But now the reason for this change is that Sweden has apparently changed both of those things. Turkey had some concerns over um, Sweden's position with regard to uh, terrorism and uh, counterterrorism. Uh, they made those concerns clear to Sweden, uh, and Sweden set about making some fairly significant and very quick changes to their own legal position to address those concerns. That was James Cleverly there, the UK's foreign secretary. And as he said, Sweden appears to have made the changes that Erdogan wanted to be made. Um, there's also talk of the US agreeing to move forward with a deal to sell F-16s to Turkey, kind of, you know, just in order to entice Turkey into allowing Sweden to join. So as I said before, nothing is official yet. And Turkey has been known to, you know, flip flop and backtrack, but it looks like a big Turkish realignment is happening. And this realignment is significant because there's a passage in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 83, and it talks about a group of moderate Arab nations that will uh, join forces with a German-led Europe in the modern era. This, this passage actually gives a list of who these specific nations will be, and one of the names there is Edom, which is an ancient name signifying modern Turkey. So because of Turkey's inclusion in this Psalm 83 list, the trumpet has been expecting Turkey to eventually end its balancing act between Russia and the West and to end its cooperation with Putin and to instead align itself much more with a German-led Europe. So, you know, these events over the last few days really seem to indicate a sea change for Erdogan, and that is in line with what we would expect based on this Psalm 83 passage. And uh, we do have uh, an article that we'll leave a link to in our show notes. It's by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's called A Mysterious Prophecy, and it goes through all the details of that Psalm 83 passage. Again, that's A Mysterious Prophecy by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry.
Welcome to our final segment this hour as we complete the week in review. I'm Philip Nice. I'm with Andrew Miller and Jeremiah Jacques at the Trumpet Studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, along with Richard Palmer in person this week. And we are connected by teleconference to our office in Jerusalem and Mihailo Zekic. We want to get into a discussion here at the end that involves Europe and Russia. Jeremiah Jacques, can you introduce this topic for us? Yes, we've just passed the 500-day mark of Russia's war on Ukraine just a couple of days ago, and this really has been a history-altering event because it's not just Russia trying to take a nation's land and people against their will and against specific promises that Russia made. All of that would be significant enough, but it's not just that. This is also Russia working to end the global order that has really stabilized the world since the end of World War II. 1945, the year that World War II ended, is sometimes called Year Zero by historians. That's because, you know, the the worst war that mankind had ever faced finally came to an end, and the world was so devastated. Three percent of all people had been killed, uh, millions displaced, trillions of dollars worth of damage, and all of that had also just happened 20 years earlier with World War One as well. So the U.S. and the U.K. and the other victors said, we need a reset. Year zero. We need to make sure none of this ever happens again. So it was in year zero, 1945, or shortly after that, that the United Nations was established. It was supposed to create, you know, international laws that all the countries would abide by. It was supposed to be a forum where member nations could talk about the problems instead of going to war against each other. And just about all the countries in the world signed up to be a part of the United Nations. So it was a major development. It really felt like a reset to many at the time. Also around that time, NATO was created, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This was, you know, just this massive alliance of countries. Uh, and the creation of NATO was even more significant than the UN because it's a formal military alliance. The UN makes recommendations and hopes that the members will follow them. But with NATO, it's far more serious. So there are, you know, 32 now almost countries in the alliance. And if one of them is attacked by another nation, then all of them are automatically at war together with that, that other country for the most part. So anyway, NATO was a major part of year zero, and it was a huge part of that global reset that the people wanted because the alliance was so huge and it included the United States. So for one thing, none of the nations within that alliance wanted to battle against each other. And then also nations outside of NATO didn't want to risk waging war against anyone in this huge alliance. So the world, you know, has had um, a very imperfect peace since then. Ha has it had peace? Not even close. But there has been comparative peace. The last 78 years have been comparatively peaceful in terms of international conflicts. The great powers have not gone to war against each other. The great powers have mostly refrained from territorial wars that used to be so common. The borders of nations have not changed much by outside force in those 78 years since year zero. And if you look at the data for how many people have died in wars, you see that since World War II, the numbers have been far lower than pretty much any era in, in history. So things have definitely not been sunshine and rainbows since year zero. But you have to acknowledge that the world that the United States and the UK uh, set up and policed was comparatively peaceful and wealthy and stable. And that 
is what Russia has really been attacking for the last 500 days. They hate the U.S.-led order, even though they had a chance to integrate into it and become wealthy by it. They hate it. And, and there's a long list of countries that they aim to conquer. It's not just Ukraine. And it's, that's very clear. So the Russians have been waging this, this brutal war right on Europe's doorstep. And this war has even included threats and plans, actual plans to use nuclear weapons in some cases. So I think it would be impossible to overstate uh, just how much this is changing the world and how much it has been specifically frightening the European nations. This is what we saw on display uh this week, I think, in particular, with a NATO summit going on in uh, in Vilnius in Lithuania, a pretty big uh, meeting there. And as even we alluded to in the first half, there have been some pretty big developments in that, in that you've got Sweden now, Finland uh, joining NATO. Just even before that, a week or two ago, you had Switzerland and Austria kind of integrating themselves with some of Germany's uh, new air defense systems. This is These are all countries that throughout the Cold War were neutral and or you're trying as much as possible to stay out of it, couldn't, wouldn't join NATO before. So for them signing up, they're a sign of this fear. You've got Poland kind of going gangbusters in rebuilding its military or building its military. Um, they've, they've, they've ordered hundreds of tanks uh, over the last year or so of, of varying quality. Uh, they're beefing up their air force. You're getting a lot of other other countries uh, improving their military capability. And so you have, I think at this NATO summit, these two um, key changes that have been going on in um, or, or key trends going on in Europe. On the one hand, you've got Europe generally be, you know, genuinely being frightened by what is happening in Russia. But also, as Jeremiah said, you know, what Russia is doing exposes its hatred of the United States and that, yes, this is a war with Ukraine, but ultimately it's about overthrowing the, the US-led world order. And you look at who is aligned with Russia, and that is incredibly revealing. So publicly, you've got China uh, and even India. And uh, this is huge from a biblical prophetic standpoint. We've been forecasting the, the kind of an alliance with these Asian giants for a, for a long, long time. But also, you've got Germany offering, at best, tepid support for Ukraine. And this trend where, again and again, they've not been willing to make a public break with America. You know, for them, the price of a public break is very high. Uh, so they have kind of paid lip service to giving weapons to Ukraine. Uh, they're not quite ready. It's not the, the, their time yet to make that public break, all the while doing deals with Russia. And so you saw this with the way that Germany kind of even enabled some of this war to happen in the first place by building these pipelines with, with Russia. And you saw this then with um, the way that Germany would repeatedly promise weapons for Ukraine. And then the reality would be very different. And it would turn out, OK, they said they're going to give weapons, but for whatever reason, they're not yet there yet. They're not scheduled to arrive for a very long time. Uh, it's this kind of two-faced strategy. And you see it, you saw it with some of this NATO summit. One of the big things shadowing over this NATO summit was a debate over cluster munitions, where America said we're sending cluster bombs to Ukraine. Russia was using cluster bombs on Ukrainian citizens. I mean, these are horrible weapons. And America has decided, well, 
you know, I guess if you want to stop Russia using cluster bombs, the only way to do it is to to give Ukraine their own cluster bombs. Uh, but Germany stayed out of that. Germany's been not just quietly on the sidelines, kind of not participating, but being very vocal in their refusal to participate with this. Uh, so you've got that you know, kind of deliberate not showing of a of a united front. You also saw it, I think, in the way, in the role. You know, one of the big things that was on display at the summit was: Is Ukraine going to join NATO? The answer was obvious. It's been obvious for years. No. Uh, and you look at why Ukraine is not on a path to join NATO, and so much of the responsibility of that lies at Germany. You know, you can go back all the way back to 2008, where George W. Bush, uh, 2007, 2008. You know, George W. Bush wanted Ukraine to and and Georgia to join to be put on a roadmap to joining NATO, and it was Germany that derailed that and vetoed this uh, membership action plan for Ukraine and for for Georgia. Now. Now that they're in the middle of a war, their prospects for being put on some kind of roadmap to joining NATO is even more remote. So Germany wasn't the only one, but Olaf Schulz was uh, very clear in his opposition to NATO joining uh, to, to Ukraine joining NATO, and this helped swing a lot of Eastern uh, or swing a lot of other countries that are dependent on Germany behind this same position. And Joe Biden, though, also uh, at this point, you know, kind of had America blocking Ukraine joining NATO. But, you, you know, you see some some people kind of claim, well, Ukraine was about to be in, invited to join NATO. This is why Putin invaded. It's plainly nonsense because uh, their applications to join NATO have been uh, vetoed again and again. You saw both trends, though. Fear of Russia and this uh, Germany's quiet support for Russia on display at this key NATO summit. And these trends on the on the there's, there's some that's a bit contradictory. But that's because Germany has this contradictory relationship with Russia, where Russia for them is both their biggest potential ally and help and their biggest potential threat and enemy. And you've had this relationship where Germany's never quite sure how to do you know, you saw this in World War Two, where it was an alliance with Russia that enabled Germany to start World War Two. And it was a mass of Russian men and blood that played a, a massive role in ending World War II as well. Uh, so it's you kind of get a good picture of this complicated German-Russian relationship just on display this week. I think there's also something to be said about the flip side of what Mr. Palmer was just mentioning. I mean, yes, this war is terrifying Europe. Yes, this is getting them to see the need for greater security, but it's also exposing quite a bit of Russian weakness at this point. Um, when the war started, when I saw it, I, like a lot of other people out there, thought Ukraine was going to be steamrolled in a few weeks. That hasn't happened yet. If anything, obviously, there's a bit of a, a ebb and flow, but they've been gaining territory. It wasn't that long ago when they actually took back some territory that Russia and or Russian-backed uh, proxies, rather, seized from Ukraine all the way back in, in uh, 20, uh, 2015 when uh, uh, the rebellion in the Donbass first started. So Ukraine has been getting some gains here. Obviously, they've had a lot of help from American equipment, British equipment, some European equipment, etc. So it's not like Ukraine is alone holding them back. But at the same time, you have this Russia, one, supposedly one of the great premier superpowers of this world, and a tiny neighbor next to him with a fraction of the military experience, with a fraction of the technology uh, available to them, and they're being able to hold off Russia. 
Now, yes, Russia hasn't used all of its manpower available. Russia's, uh, Vladimir Putin still wants to create a sense of normalcy in Russia to not bring in a case of total war. But even if they did marshal all their troops, even if they did use everything they had, if that's what it takes to destroy Ukraine, that's still a pretty pyrrhic victory for Russia's part. You saw this in World War II or in the lead-up when Finland was able to uh, beat off the Soviet Union. Russia took a few slivers of territory, but Finland stayed independent, and Russia got those few slivers at a high cost. And Hitler was looking at that and going, this was this invincible military power that turns out it's a bit of a paper tiger. I, I'm going to have a pretty easy time going through there. We know that Russia and Europe are going to go to war in the future. We know that Europe is not necessarily going to look at Russia as a weakling. But at the same time, when it sees actions like this, it gives Europe the idea, yes, we do have a fighting chance with this. We can actually beat this Russian bear that's been terrorizing us for so long. And so you could see, if not now, then then down the road, this kind of mindset being developed in Europe as well. But that's, I think, down the road, as you say, um, in the in the nearer term, I think it's uh, we're looking for a different trend. Yeah, I think the the point about Russian weakness is an interesting one. I think one thing that's interesting about it is that, believe it or not, I think there are, there's a sub substantial minority in Germany that is more scared of America than they are of Russia. You, know, you look at some of these opinion polls. This was this was pre-war, and people you were asking people like, who do you think is the most dangerous man in the world? And when Donald Trump was president, Donald Trump was winning those polls in Germany. He was beating Vladimir Putin. He was beating uh, Kim Jong Il. Uh, and North Korea and, and, and Iran and all of these other countries. And you know, one of the things I mentioned briefly in the first half is you've got these opinion polls showing that the alternative for Deutschland is growing as the, uh, the number two party in Germany. A big part of the reason why is this war with Russia? Because they have, there's a, you know, it seems like about a third of Germans genuinely believe that Germany should be on Russia's side, not just in this war, but just globally. Uh, and it's that kind of, I think, the, the, there's so many ways that this ties into Bible prophecy. Uh, you know, this rise in a, a united European military power. This is something Herbert W. Armstrong has been talking about for years and years and years. And you can go to 1945 and some of the first radio broadcasts he's doing after the defeat of Nazi Germany. And he says, Europe is going to rise again. It's going to be in the form of a European Union. And he even says the word European Union. Uh, he said it's going to start off as a political power and it's going to eventually, sorry, an, an economic power, an economic union. It's going to eventually become a military union. And you see this war with Russia really being one of the big things that's finally kind of making this military union come together. Uh, and, and so all of that is happening exactly the way that Mr. Armstrong said it would based on Bible prophecy. And at the same time, it's exposing this hatred of Germany. You know, there's a, I mean, this hatred of the United States. There's a lot of people in the United States that are cheering on Europe's response to the war of Russia. And that when Germany comes along and says, we're going to boost our defense spending to post-Cold War record highs, we're going to create an extra $100 billion to spend on our military, the overwhelming response from the United States is, about time, finally. Uh, and when you look at how America has footed the bill for Germany's defense, you can absolutely understand that response. But then... Uh, the Bible also says, well, this is a power that doesn't think like you. There's a lot of Bible prophecies that talk about Germany pretending to be an ally, pretending to be a, a lover in biblical terminology, but they're not really. 
and that actually you know there's a there's there's a seething pot of resentment as as Jeremiah one puts it and uh, you see also all of that on display with the way that Europe and Germany is responding and and Trump editor in chief Gerald Flurry had an article on this back in July last year Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed it goes through the way that Germany enabled this war but more importantly goes through the way that this comes right out of bible prophecy and how it exposes the way that once Europe has completed this military power it's not just a germ a, a danger to Russia but they themselves are fundamentally opposed to this U.S.-led world order, and it's a danger to, to that and to the United States and to Britain as well. Yes, that's an excellent resource, that, uh, that article that Mr. Palmer just mentioned there. And then right now we are also working on a new issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet that's all about the current trends in Europe. Just, you know, mostly how Russia is terrifying Europe into more closely unifying and uh, militarizing. So the plan is for several articles along those lines to be published in that new edition. So I hope that uh, listeners who subscribe to the Philadelphia Trumpet will keep an eye out for that issue. And for those who don't, please cruise over to thetrumpet.com and sign up for a free subscription to our print edition. Thetrumpet.com slash subscribe is the handiest place to do that. Thetrumpet.com slash Subscribe, and you can benefit from the efforts of the Philadelphia trumpet staff focusing on the European reaction to this war. And uh, in the meantime, Germany's secret deal with Russia exposed, as Mr. Palmer mentioned there. That's all the time we have for Trumpet Hour this week. Email us your thoughts on the program, as always, at letters at thetrumpet.com. We thank our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mahalo Zekic. We thank Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And we thank you most of all for listening to the Week in Review, and we look forward to being back with you on Trumpet Hour.